you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, I've known Robbie for a number of years here, and if I know anything about Robbie, it's that I know uh, he would much prefer your attention be on Jesus uh, and that your face be turned toward the Lord. Uh, and so tonight we're going to do exactly that. Uh, he has led us to that throughout um, his entire tenure here. Uh, and I think the best way for us to kind of gather tonight is to be a people who turn our face toward the Lord and, and to see what the scriptures has to say about him. So again, 1 John chapter 4. Um, I'll be honest with you. We're going through the whole chapter tonight. We're just knocking out all of chapter four. Yeah, it's great. And I'm long-winded to begin with. So no intro tonight. We're just going to jump in. All right. Um, First John chapter four, verse one starts with these words in the NIV version. It says, dear friends. Now this is so annoying when a preacher's like, I have a long way to go, but here's the first two words. Let me linger on it. But it's actually even worse than that. In the Greek, this is just one word. This is the beginning of chapter four. It uses this phrase, dear friends. Again, this is in the NIV, the New International Version. And what we actually find here is one Greek word, and that Greek word is the Greek word, um, agapetos. Agapetos is the word that means beloved or esteemed or dear or favorite or worthy of love. All throughout the book of 1 John, you'll see this Greek word pull up. And from time to time, different translations will say, dear brothers and sisters or dearly beloved It is the word for which we get the most intense Greek word for love, the word agape, love. This is the word that he opens chapter four with. This word that's found all throughout in 2, 7 and 3, 2, all throughout this letter. There's this deep affection. There's this deep care for. There's indeed a great great love for the people he is writing to. Now, here's what you and I know. If you've been around church for any any amount of time, Well, one of the things you'll immediately recognize uh, is that love can be this really tricky word in English where it's not so much um, in other languages. So for example, I'll say something like, I love coffee. And then in the same breath, I'll say, I love my daughter. I'll say, I love tacos, but I also love Jesus, right? And so sometimes I'll say like, I love my wife and I love this other person, but I try to go, I love them in different ways. It's a word that's loaded with so much. And in the English language, This idea that you are my dearly beloved, that I love you, that I love you deeply, is a complicated and difficult word to parse. But in other languages, including the Greek language that the New Testament is written in, this word love doesn't just show up as one word, but shows up as multiple words. And so some of you might know this, in the Greek language, there are four words, four Greek words for the word love. I wanna walk you through those four words. I wanna help you see what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about love. The first love is the word, the first word is the word storge in the Greek language. And this describes a familial love of siblings and of parents. It's the kind of love you have for your brother, even though he drives you crazy sometimes. It's the kind of love you have for your aunt where you might not be super close to her, but if anything happened, you'd be deeply troubled. It's a bond that families share. It's a bond that exists within the context of family. The second love I want you to know of is the word phileia or phileo. This describes the powerful emotional bond seen in deep friendships. This phileia or phileo kind of love is the kind of love you have with your deepest friends, your best friends, your friends you've had your whole life, the friends you care about deeply, whether you're in intimate fellowship with them now or whether you would just do anything for them because you were friends when you were a child. This is what's being described here. The city of Philadelphia, you might know, is the city of brotherly love. That's what's described here in this word. The next word is the Greek word eros. Eros is a sensual, a romantic love. It's not just sex, but it's that kind of passionate love between lovers that exists even outside of the sexual experience. 
These are three words used for love in the Greek language. And all three of these words have different layers and connotations. In fact, this word you'll find in the New Testament only in the negative form. This word you'll find for all throughout the New Testament. You won't find eros in the New Testament. But the most popular word and the most important word that you will find for love in the New Testament is the word that John opens chapter four with in verse one. It is that word agape, that agape kind of love, that kind of love that is perfect, unconditional, sacrificial, and pure. It is this perfect kind of love and almost always described as the type of love that God loves us with and the type of love that we are called to love one another if we're serious about being a people formed into the image and likeness of Christ. Tonight, I wanna talk to you about agape love. Tonight, I wanna help you think deeply about what it means to love with this agape kind of love. Again, John opens the fourth chapter and all throughout the book with this phrase, dearly beloved, dear friends, my agapeto, my people I love deeply. And here's what I wanna ask you tonight. I wanna ask you seven questions. Seven questions about agape love. Seven questions that I want you to ask yourself. See, because here's the problem. Because in the English language, we use love for anything. We're like, I love that show. I love that place. I love that movie. I love that person. I love my mom. Because we use that so often, we're actually all very tempted to think we're good at love. But what if you actually started with the assumption that you were not very good at agape love? What if you started with the assumption that you probably don't agape love people like you should? Like, what if you started with the assumption that love is something you grew into rather than something you were naturally born with? See, tonight, I want to ask these questions to probe each of our hearts a little bit, to try to understand what it means for us to be a people deeply formed by love for God and love for one another, this agape kind of love the New Testament talks about. And I have seven questions I want to ask you. I'll show you that as we get through the text. It begins this, or continues in verse one, where it says, Dear friends, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is from God, or does not acknowledge is Jesus, wow, is not from God. Wow, words are hard. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now here in the world. So if you look back at verse one, you'll see that first we're called to not believe something. Right in the next breath, we're told to test the spirits. Why are we called to test the spirits? Because there are false prophets in the world and true prophets in the world. We're called in verse two to recognize the spirit of God. Do you see what's happening here in this first paragraph where he's talking to his dearly beloved? It's like he wants his dearly beloved to understand that there is falsehood, there is fake stuff in the world, there is, there's false prophets, there are things you shouldn't believe, spirits that you shouldn't buy into. Like in other words, I'm convinced that for John, Agape love was something that was deeply connected to reality and connected to truth. And here's the first question I would want to ask you tonight as you think about how well you agape, how well you love people around you. Here's the first question. Do I love people enough to tell them the truth? Do I love the people in my life enough to tell them the truth? And this 
is a question that will confront you almost on a daily basis. Do I love this person well enough to tell them the truth? It's like if you get into a little conflict or a little issue that's going on, if someone asks for your opinion on something, um, let's say, um, for example, um, all of you have had this, and I won't ask you to like raise your hand or point because I just know you've experienced this. You ever experience what it's like to have a dear friend get into a relationship where you're like, what, what, why? What, what are you doing? Why are you with him? He's terrible. He's manipulating you. He's abusing you. Why are you with her? She's terrible. She's making your life miserable. You've all had a friend like this that gets into a relationship. But then here's what happens for so many of you. You're so intimidated and so scared at the awkward moment of confronting them that rather than tell them the truth they need to know about how disastrous this relationship is in their life, you stay silent. You say nothing to them. You don't step in and say anything. And my question for you next time you get into a situation like this is this, do I love people enough to tell them the truth? Do I love people enough to tell them the truth? Or or let me give you this example. Like, let me imagine you have a friend who's venting to you and they're venting about their mom or their sister or their roommate or their boss. And they're telling you a situation. We all have this all the time. And the person is telling you the situation in such a way that they look like a saint and the other person looks like a devil. You ever notice how often we do that? We share the story, we're like, well, clearly I'm the best in the world and this other person was the worst in the world. And here's my question for you that should be running through your mind. Do I love this person enough to tell them the truth? Do I love this person enough to confront them with the fact that they might not be a saint and the other person in the story might not actually be a devil? Do I love them enough to say that to them? Like next time you're hanging out with a friend who's clearly walking in some kind of sin that has them gripped, that's destroying their lives, that's hurting them, that's harming them. My question for you is this. Do you love your sister enough to tell her that she's hurting herself? Do you love your friend enough to tell them that what the decisions he's making aren't quite wise enough? You see, this will play over and over and over and over again in your life. And the question I have for you tonight is this, do you love them enough to tell them the truth? Because someone needs to hear this tonight, that if you are lying to someone, you are not loving them. If you are lying to them, if you are not telling them the truth, if you are not shining light into the darkness and saying, this is what I need to tell you, if you are lying, you are not loving the person you purport to love. The first question that John seems obsessed with is that we would love in such a way that is in concordance with reality, in concordance with truth, that we wouldn't enable people who are walking in darkness to continue doing so because we don't want to hurt their feelings. His concern is ultimately, are we being a people who are speaking the truth? Because when I'm lying to someone, I am not loving them. It goes on this way in verse four. It says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So you'll notice there's a binary he's setting up here. It's like you've got two different options. There's the one who is from the world, there, which, is, which is one of the ways John is gonna describe the devil. In verse five, three times we hear about the world, the world, the world. In other words, to John, there's two different operating systems you can run your life on. There's the world and the flesh and the devil, like the things of evil, the things of sin, or the things of God. Like there's two operating systems you can choose to run your life on, and you can't pick both of them. You have to pick one or the other. 
And so I guess my second question when it comes to how we think about love and what it means to love one another is this question. Have I let the world or the devil define what it means to love? Like, have I allowed the forces of evil actually to define what it means to love? And one of the things I want to make you aware of is how often all of us are discipled in the ways of the world without even thinking about it. And when I say discipled, I don't even mean in a religious context. I just mean you're constantly being taught things, constantly being told things that are true. Like, I want you to know when it comes to love, for most of us, our primary discipleship in love does not come from the Bible, but it comes from Disney movies. It comes from Hallmark movies, if that's your thing you're into, right? It comes from this culture that has so much to say about love. But my question for you is this, are you allowing the devil and his lies or the culture and its distortions to teach you what love actually means? Like, do you know that our world just says that loving someone is identical with accepting and affirming everything that they do? And I want you to know that doesn't come from the Bible. Like that comes from a lie from the devil or from the world. It comes from the distortions of this world. And you know how I know it's true that I can love someone and not accept everything they do? It's because I'm a parent of a four-year-old. And I would do anything for her. I love her to pieces. And yet if I love her, there have to be times I step in and say, like, do not do that. Or like my one-year-old, this is great. He's gotten into this new pattern when he's upset and we say no about something. He'll be like outside in our backyard on the concrete. And what he'll do, I won't do it, but he'll lay down on the concrete and then start slamming his head into the concrete. And like, at no point would it be loving for me to be like, I love you so much that I receive this with joy. (laughs) Keep going. I will not step in. You do you, Noah. Like, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because love doesn't mean acceptance. Love doesn't mean affirming everything. Love doesn't mean we have to celebrate every choice that someone makes. And if you've bought into that idea, that idea does not come from the Bible. That idea comes from the world. It comes from the devil who wants to take the good gift of love and distort it and destroy it in your life. Like, can I just speak this over someone tonight? Love doesn't mean you getting taken advantage of. And like some of you have fallen into the trap that if you love someone, you'll always say yes to them. And that's not love. Some of you have fallen into the trap that if you really love your mom, you'll never set boundaries and say no to her. Some of you have fallen into the trap that if you really love your boyfriend, you would never set boundaries and say no to him. And that's not love. Like again, just I want you to recognize how easy it is for us to fall into this trap of how the world or the devil wants to twist and malign the thing that God gave to us as a good gift. If you want to love people, if you sincerely want to love people, you've got to get to the place where you allow the word of God and his truth to define love rather than the lies of the enemy and the distortions of the world. Listen, love is not acceptance of everything. Love is not always saying yes to everything. Love is not an emotion you principally feel. Love is not feeling good all the times. There are times that people in my life have loved me deeply and it has not felt good in the moment. But here's what I wanna do. I want to be the type of person, I want you to be the type of person who allows the word of God to define what love is rather than Hallmark movies, Disney movies, and what's said out in our culture. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to notice whether your expression of love is distinguishable than the world's expression of love. Like, I want you to ask the question, is there anything Jesus-like about my love? Or do I just kind of love just like kind of everyone else does? Have I just kind of fallen in line to what the culture says love is? Or do I have a distinct, supernatural, different, holy kind of agape love 
that I show to the world. We'll go on to the next question in verse seven. It says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not know love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So I said right before um, that what we wanna do is we wanna allow the word of God to define what love is rather than the lies of the devil or the distortions of our world. We wanna allow God to define what love is. And here in this passage, he's going to define it twice. He says, for God is love. He says, and then in verse nine, he says, this is how God showed his love among us. You wanna know what love is? This is love. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Like, you wanna know what love is? Look to the gospel. You wanna know what love is? Look to the cross. You wanna know what love actually looks like, how the Bible actually defines it? The Bible doesn't define it with an idea, a philosophy, or a worldview. The Bible defines love through a person, and that person is Jesus. So when I look to Jesus, I can see what love is. So when we talk at this church about living and loving like Jesus, we're not saying just be a nice fella. We're not saying that. We're saying to be a very specific kind of love embodied in the person of Jesus and expressed in this agape love that God has for the world. So here's the question I wanna ask for you when it comes to modeling our love after Jesus. Do I initiate, sacrifice, provide for, and protect others? Four ideas here. Initiate, sacrifice, provide, protect. How does Jesus love us? He initiates. What do I mean by that? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us, for you, for me, in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like in other words, it wasn't that you wanted to get back to God, it's that God wanted you so badly. God initiated salvation. God moved first. God said, I want this to be different. I want them to be saved before you wanted anything to do with God. Like you were running in your own direction, doing your own thing. And maybe even some of you here tonight are doing that right now. You're just going in your own direction. And if you would stop and turn around, you would recognize God never started, stopped chasing after you. Like this is the gospel, that God wanted you before you wanted him. So what does that mean for how we love one another? It means that to love someone is to initiate with them. To love someone is to take the first step toward them when the relationship has been damaged. So let me put it this way. I'm willing to bet all the money on my wallet, which is not much, that there's someone in the room tonight who has been in a fight with a family member in the last week with your mom, with your sister, with your dad. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a roommate, but someone's been in a fight. And the fight kind of ended awkwardly. And you went your separate ways. And there's tension and it's tension everywhere. And you're not sure kind of how to move past this. I need you to hear me so clearly tonight. Do you know what love does? Love initiates reconciliation. It initiates it. Do you know what that means practically? It means that for someone in this room, you need to send a text message to the person you are warring with and say, things aren't good. I want them to be better. How can I mend the relationship? That's love. It initiates. And if you're sitting there stewing, going, well, they should text me first because they messed up in the first place. I want them to crawl to me. That's not love. Love steps out. 
Love initiates. Love says, I want things to be better. Love says, I'm going to move toward this person even if they don't deserve it. Why? Because God moved toward us when we did not deserve it. That's love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus into the world. What does love do? Love is going to initiate. Love is always going to move first. Then what's gonna love gonna do? Love is gonna sacrifice. Love is going to choose to give up. Love is going to cost us something. If you love people in such a way that it costs you nothing, I doubt you're actually loving them. So how do we love the people in our lives? How do we sacrifice for people around us? Well, there's the obvious, like I would lay down my life for you. But for every single person alive in this room today, that's never actually happened, right? Because you're alive. And so there's this tendency to be like, I would do some grand gesture for you. I would do anything for you. I love you to the end of the world. But then you're at a meal. You're at BJ's after the service tonight. The check comes and you make sure it is down to the penny equally split up among you. Rather than just being the person who says, I'm going to be a little more generous. Like what if you just started deciding every single time you were around people you loved, you were going to pay an extra 10% of the bill. Front an extra 20% of the money. Not because you have to and not because you're rich, but because you love them and you're willing to sacrifice and actually put your money where your mouth is and say, I love you enough to sacrifice for you. Like if you've gotten into this place where everything always has to be equal, everyone has to pay an equal amount of gas, everyone pays equally and you never step forward and say, I'm gonna do a little more. I'm gonna move a little further. I'm gonna walk the extra mile. Then I don't know that you've experienced the depth of agape love. Love sacrifices, love initiates, love provides for people. Like love chooses to go out of the way to provide for people. Love helps people. It serves people. It steps into needs. Like here's what I know of so many of you in this room, and I just look out across this room, I know so many of you are serving in ministries of this church. Like so many of you tomorrow night will be here for our Friday Night Lights, this high school event we do, thousand or so high school kids here on campus, and you're like, you'll be here from nine to midnight, nine to actually 1 a.m. And you're serving and you're helping, you're giving up your Friday night so that you can meet a need. Some of you will serve at Buddy Break this weekend. Some of you serve with our children here at this church. Some of you have just decided, and I'm not just gonna love in a feeling, I'm gonna step out and I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna sacrifice my Friday night. I'm gonna provide for those who need. That's love. And then what's the final thing that Jesus does? He protects us. Like he keeps us in the palm of his hand. Like our great confidence in our salvation is not our ability to hold on to Jesus, right? It's Jesus's ability to hold on to us. So what happens? He's the protector for us. So what does that mean for those of us who we, lo- who, lo- who we love? How do we protect other people? Okay, on the one hand, it could be physical. Like maybe you're going to protect someone. I, I just think of my wife. Like, am I willing to jump in front of a car for her? Yes. Would I protect her anywhere? Yes. Have I ever had to, on my little street in Thousand Oaks, like fight someone off? No. So it's really easy for me to be like, well, I'd protect her if I had to, but I guess I will never, no, but see, Here's why I often have to protect her. Like physically, maybe not as often. But do you know that all the time in marriage, I find myself protecting my wife's heart from the lies of the enemy that say she's not a good enough mom because she's not perfect. From the pressure of the world that says she has to be perfect as a mom, perfect as a woman, perfect as a mother, perfect as a wife, perfect in every way. From the lies that seep into her heart that she's not good enough, that she's not strong enough, that she's not wise enough. Like all of these lies seep into her heart. And as a person of love, my job is to protect her. My job is to call out the lies she's believing, to say, you're believing that, but it's not true about you. The devil is lying to you. You're believing the lies of the world. Don't buy into that. You're better than that. Christ has redeemed you and loved you and called you his own. You want to protect the people who are around you? Identify the lies they're believing in and gently call them into the light. 
Invite them out of the darkness that is suffocating them and invite them into Christ's glorious light. What do we want to do? If we're truly a people of agape, we want to love in such a way that looks like Jesus. We initiate, we provide, we protect, and we defend. We're the type of people who are going to come around those people and sacrificially love them. It's been said a thousand times, but let me say it again for someone tonight, that you can give without loving. Like, like you can give whatever you want, but you can't love without giving. And until your love actually costs you something, I want to challenge whether or not it is the agape love that the New Testament talks about. I want us to be a people. I want to be the type of person who gives in such a way that it costs me something, not because the person I'm loving or serving deserves it, but because that's what Jesus did for me on the cross when I didn't deserve it. I want to show you the next question here. It goes down this way in verse uh, 12. It says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and him in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Talk about sentences that will change your life. Like if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, the God of the universe lives in your bones. Not part of the sermon, but I just thought that was amazing. Okay, verse 16. And we know and rely on the love that God has for us. And then these three words, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God is love. That sounds like such a boring statement to you because you grew up in the West. But for almost all of human history and in almost every part of the world, the notion that God is love is blasphemous, strange, and weak. The idea that God isn't might or God isn't power or God isn't strength is strange to their ears. But the Christian claim is that God is love, which means in some mysterious way, every time I'm walking in agape love, there's some way in which I'm participating in the God who exudes and exists in that love. See, that's what this is. Every time I'm loving someone, every time I'm truly walking in this agape, this perfect love of God, I'm somehow participating in what God has for this world. So here's the question I wanna ask us when it comes to our love our love for one another, your love for your mom and your roommates and your friends and your coworkers and your boss. Let me ask this question. Is there anything supernatural about how I love people? Is there anything supernatural about it? Like, is there anything about the way I love people that people are like, that just doesn't make any sense? Or do I love people in just sort of the natural way everyone else seems to love one another? Now, how do you answer this question? How are you like, I don't know if my love is supernatural or not. I'll try to give you the answer. And I want to give you the answer out of the Bible verse that we read at weddings. And it was like never intended for a wedding script, but alas, Paul wrote it. And then we all started using it at weddings. And I think in heaven, he's going to have words for us. But either way, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 7, you know this well. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Can we go back a slide um, to the beginning of this text? When I read love is patient and I lead, read the idea that God is love, here's what I can start to say. I can start to say God is patient. What's God like? God is kind. God doesn't envy. He's not this boastful person. He's not proud. He's not dishonoring others. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Like, you don't know what supernatural love looks like? What does it say? Love is the very first thing. It's patient. You know what natural love looks like? Natural love means 
You stop loving someone when you run out of patience for them. You want to know what supernatural love is? It's that you begin loving them when you run out of patience. Like, like natural love says, once I run out of patience for you, the love tank is empty. Supernatural love says, the moment I run out of patience for you is when agape love enters the scene. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't work on paper. If you're going to ask me how that works, I have no idea how that works. I just know that's what the Spirit of God does. When we run out of patience with someone and we're still loving them, in fact, our love increases for them, we can know that our love is supernatural. What's the next word here? Love is kind. You want to know what natural love looks like? Natural love looks like be kind to people who are kind to you. You know what supernatural love looks like? Be kind to the people who are the worst to you, who are rude to you, who are mean and condescending and gossiping and slandering you. Be kind to those people. Because listen, it's super easy to be kind to people who are kind to you, right? That's the easiest thing in the world. Anyone can do that. You want to know what supernatural love looks like? It's the person who is spitting anger and rude things, who is cutting you down, who's saying the worst things about you. And you love your ex anyway. That's love. You love your ex. You love your enemy. You love the person who hates you. You love the person who speaks down to you. You love the person who ridicules you for your faith. You love the person who wants nothing good for you. That's supernatural love. Like you read this text. And you go, okay, if I'm walking in this, I can be certain that the Spirit of God is doing something spectacular and supernatural in my life. The Spirit of God is not moving in my life if if my love does not look something like this. Again, I want us to ask these questions about agape love. Is there anything supernatural? Is there anything strange about the way you love your roommates, the way you love your small group, the way you love your church, the way you love people at work? Is there anything strange or supernatural or different about it? goes on this way in verse 17. We'll get to question number five of seven. It says, this is how love is made complete in us so we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who lives in fear or the one who fears is, made perf- or is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. This sentence here is one of the favorite sentences in the entire Bible for me. I love it, that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I love this sentence. I love this phrase throughout the scripture because what it tells me is that there's actually something that love should do inside of me. If I've truly understood agape love, if I'm truly being formed into someone who lives and loves like Jesus, fear should be driven out of me. And when we talk about fear, it's easy to talk about fear of the future or fear of the the, the dark or fear of the world or fear of some other thing external. But I've actually found the greatest thing we tend to fear, and I'm sure you'll find this in your life too, is people. It's people and their opinions of me. And so what does it mean that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear? Here's the question I want to ask you tonight, question number five. Am I obsessed with people's opinion of me? Uh, Do I just live obsessed with what everyone else thinks of me? Do I live constantly concerned and afraid about what everyone else has to say about me? Because if I'm the type of person who's constantly concerned and worried and upset about what anyone's going to say about me, love has not been made perfect in me. I've not understood this agape love of God. Because let me put it to you in three different ways. Listen, I want you to understand, child of God, if you know Jesus, if you trusted in him, you've called upon the name of the Lord, you've been saved, I want you to know, because of God's love, I don't fear God's judgment. I don't. Like, I want you to know that if I die in a car crash on the way home tonight, and I stand before the Lord God in judgment, I have zero fear of that judgment. 
It's not because I'm perfect and it's not because I don't sin. It's not because I don't take my sin seriously. I do. And I sin all the time. Still, as a man of God, as a pastor, it's not because I don't take my sin seriously. It's because I take Jesus seriously when he said it's finished. It's done. I take Romans 8.1 serious where it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not, not a lot of condemnation. No condemnation. So I'm going to stand in front of God in judgment one day and I don't have any fear of that because of what Jesus has done for me. So that's what the love of God does. It just frees me from thinking that God's constantly like with his arrow pulled back, that just do it one more time, Howard, do it. I, I dare you, right? That's not how God is. Listen, I know I'll stand in front of God for judgment someday and I know exactly what he's gonna say. You know what his words are gonna be? I can't wait. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's gonna be his word over my life. And child of God, this may stun you. That'll be his word over your life too. Because he will look on you, not through your own deeds and what they deserve. He will look at you with the same way he looks at his beloved son, Jesus. And say, come into my rest, come into my glory, come into the joy of the master. I don't fear God's judgment because of his love. But you know what else that means? It means because of God's love, I don't fear others' judgments. Like from time to time on my Instagram, I'll post a little clip of me preaching. Um, and, and a lot of times it's just completely ignored, which is fine. Uh, and sometimes people will say nice things, but from time to time, someone will come on and say something rude and mean. And so not so long ago, I had someone pop on and it was pretty clear, like they weren't a Christian, but they somehow found my little video and they started critiquing me and saying that I'm a really bad public speaker. And I wanted to say, it's not public speaking, it's preaching. But like, I didn't go there. Like I, I didn't. And there was this like moment of me being like, here's some random internet guy that I don't know at all who has cast judgment upon me. And, and I wish I could tell you like it didn't bother me at all because it did bother me. But you know the conclusion I ultimately came to? I'll tell you the best news in the universe. I'm gonna stand in judgment someday and it's not in front of random internet guy. It's not. And you know what's awesome? I'm gonna stand in judgment someday and it's not in front of any of you. So I don't have to stand here and be like, what do they think of me? Oh no, I don't have to constantly live in that stress. And neither do you. There is no one in this world who will sit on the throne of heaven. There is no human being who will judge you. You will stand in front of God the Father and we already know what he's gonna say. So I'm just not gonna live in this crippling fear of what everyone thinks about me. I'm not going to live in that. And you're invited to be free from that too. What? Perfect love, it drives out fear. And then what's the third and final one? I think this might be the most important for some of you. Because of God's love, I don't fear my own judgment. It's not that I just don't care what you think about me. I don't care what I think about me. Because ultimately, my eternal fate is not based on what Brian Howard thinks of Brian Howard. Because there are days I look at myself and go, you are the worst Christian ever. There are days I look at myself and go, you are faithless, you are prayerless, you are distracted, you are all up in your head and all about yourself. And you know what God says? He goes, don't worry about your judgment, I've already made mine. And some of you live in this shame where you can't forgive yourself and you're so caught up in what you've done and what you think about you. And I just think the God of the universe wants to free you from that. You don't have to forgive yourself because you can't forgive yourself. God's already forgiven you. You don't have to assess and evaluate yourself constantly because God's already assessed you and said, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Like this is what the love of God, this agape love does. So I can walk through life not being afraid a lightning bolt's gonna hit me, not being afraid of everyone's constant opinion of me and not even being afraid of my own opinion of me, which sometimes is awesome, but sometimes if we're honest, it's the worst. I just get to live free. That's what the love of God does. It says the love of God, this perfect love drives out fear. Are you living in that? Are you living in that kind of freedom? We're just not afraid of judgment because fear has to do with punishment. 
Verse 20 will take us to question six. It says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister, whoever whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So here's the claim. No one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen him. Like we haven't seen God. But then here's the claim. You have seen one another. And so the basic logic here is, listen, if you can't see, if you can't love the people who you can physically see, you don't actually love God. Like whoever claims to love God and yet hates the people in this room who hates other Christians, who hates a brother or sister in Christ, like they cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command. It's like, here's the one thing. Love your brother and sister. So here's the final um, question based on the text. And we'll close with one seventh question I want to ask. Um, here's a question. Question number six. Do I love Christians who vote different than me? Now, this may seem like, like I'm totally out of left field. Like we're talking about love and suddenly it's politics. And like, why are we getting into politics? And here's the simple answer to that question. Because political power is the false God of our age. It is the God people run to when they abandon the true God of heaven and earth. And when you abandon the God of heaven and earth, the highest and greatest power in this world is political power. So you might as well run there. And here's what I found. The reason I ask this question this way is because I believe for some of you, this is the dividing line of whether you truly love people or you just like people who are a lot like you. Like, here's the question I want to ask you. If you are a political liberal, do you love, and I mean actually love, people who voted for Donald Trump? Like, do you love them? And if you are a political conservative, do you love, and I mean actually love, people who voted for Joe Biden? because of the bounds of your love only extends to your political allies, I want to suggest to you that it is not the God of the universe you are worshiping, but the God of political power and might that you have bowed down to. And I want to call you to turn and repent from that. If you cannot find it in your heart to love someone because you see them as a political opponent and the bounds of your love only extends to people who vote just like you, you have been caught up in a political moment, in a cultural moment, that obsesses over politics over all else. Listen, it doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to like their views. It doesn't mean you don't argue and talk about it and debate and work it out. But it means that if you can't find it in your heart to love someone who voted different than you, you've fallen into the false god of this age. What are we called to do? We're called to love one another. And there's no asterisk in the back that says, unless they voted for some guy you didn't like. You don't get out on that. That's what we're called to do to love people who are different than us, think different than us, are aiming in different ways in life. We are called to love people who we think are wrong on almost everything. We're like, I can't believe that person would think that way. I'm called to love them anyway. That's true. You are called to love people who think different, vote different, talk different, pray different, look different, um, act different. You are called to be that kind of individual. There's the seventh and final question, and our, our band's going to make their way up, and as always, we'll close in some songs. But I want to ask this question. It's an important question. As we talk about agape love tonight, as we talk about what it means to actually love one another, to be living in this agape kind of love that God gives us, here's the seventh and final question. What do I need to do in light of the questions asked tonight? Um, what, one of the big burdens in my life at this time um, is to make sure that we as a church are, are thinking the right things and asking the right questions following sermons. And so one of the burdens I've had is this, that, that I think what can often happen after a sermon, and this isn't like you or me, it's like every Christian ever, is like your tendency is to leave this place and then play like assess the pastor game, right? 
And, and like you, you can chuckle because you, you do it, right? You'll leave and be like, ah, that wasn't his best tonight. That was not, he was just a little off. He had a few good moments. I, I, I did the thing we all do like ah, a few times, but not his best. Or you'll leave and you'll just be like, that was fire. That was so good. Oh my goodness, he was on fire tonight. And you're just like, it's assessment. So sometimes I stand up here and I feel like you're all Olympic judges and you're like, that's a seven. I'm like, oh, I could have done better, right? And you leave in assessment mode and I leave like, oh, it was. It's gonna happen. Like every sermon, you're gonna have an assessment and evaluation. But can I plead with you to make the question you ask after every single sermon you hear in this place, this one. What do I need to do in response to this? What do I need to do in light of this? Spiritual maturity does not come from you learning a bunch of information. Information does not make you spiritually mature. Action does. You responding to what you heard, responding to what the Spirit is doing in your life, and doing something about it, that is how you become more and more and more like Jesus. Not information, it is behavior, it is action. It is taking what you hear, being transformed by it, so you put it into action. Like, hear me on this. Some of you, before you leave this room tonight, need to text your mom and say, things need to get better, how can I make them better? Some of you, before you leave this room tonight, need to talk to someone and apologize for how you treated them, for how you spoke about them, for how you've walked with them in this season. Some of you sometime tonight or this week need to pay a little extra on a meal or be a little more generous in some space. Like, listen, some of you have a friend and you know that you need to say some things about their life, their behavior, their relationship, the path they're on, and you've not loved them enough to do that. And that changes this week. Like, the question tonight isn't, did I like the sermon? Was it one of my favorites? Did I learn anything? All fine questions. The question I want you to ask is this one. What do I need to do in light of this? How do I need to behave? How do I need to act differently? Because last week we saw this epic verse, and I hope this is the way you think about sermons. We'll close with this. First John chapter 3, verse 18 says this. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech. Let's just not talk about love. Not just be the type of person who say we're loving or say we want to be more loving, but let's do this. Let's love in action and in truth. And when you do that, you will watch God take that agape love that he showed you and shine it through you into a world that is desperate for that kind of love. Let's be that kind of church who's willing to respond to the word of God, to listen to Jesus, and to do what he said to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. And thank you for once again, the opportunity to turn to your word, to think about love, to think about this agape kind of love that drives out all fear. God, I have no idea who you brought into this room tonight, what they needed to hear, what your Holy Spirit's doing. I just pray that no one would harden their heart toward the things of the Spirit tonight. I pray we'd be people who walk in obedience, who love not just in words or thoughts or feelings, but who love in truth and in action and in deed. God, help us to be a people shaped deeply by the agape love of Jesus. Help us to love one another well. And in the end, would you make us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.